Hey everybody and welcome to the Sunny 16 podcast. Uh, you are listening to show 187. Now if I remember rightly in the 1990s there was a electronic dance track that was called something like 187 Lockdown. Or maybe that was the name of the band or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe Graham knows. Graham, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Aid. And no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Although, to be fair, I was trying to think of something to go with 60 yesterday on vacuum paper and couldn't even manage something for that. So I'm not the best person for number-based analogies, I'm afraid. Oh, well, I'm sure you have your strengths. Mm, we'll have to keep going with the podcasting thing until we find some. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. I think we'll burn everybody out if I keep doing that. Quite possibly, quite possibly. And who have you chosen to burn out today? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, we've got this is a great, this is kind of a part baked burnout already because it's somebody who's already well versed in the podcast world. Uh, it is an absolute delight to have with us at long last um, one of the co-hosts of the highest placed of all the losers in the podcast of the year awards. <laughs> it is Perry G from the Classic Lenses Podcast. Perry, welcome to the podcast. Hello, good morning. It's good to be here. Yeah, 5 a.m. in the morning where you are. We do appreciate it. We do, in- we do <laughs> no, indeed, no Perry. Good good to talk to you. It's, um, yeah, that the, the, this time difference thing is, you know, it's great that podcasting is global, but, you know, the logistics, the, re- the real world in the trenches of podcasting, it's, it's hard. Yeah, we, we so- just finished recording with uh, Ethan Moses a couple hours ago. Uh, oh, really? So... Yep. At the end of the episode, they were joking that it's it's my turn to go podcast tarting it around. <laughs> so, OK, so what that would have been in the middle of the night for you, would it? Uh, no, we we started recording at around 830 p.m. Hong Kong time. Oh, OK. So you have had some sleep at least. Yeah. <laughs> okay wow okay this is yeah this is the, I, i've had podcasting at the beginning and end of my day as well so i was at, up at 6 a.m today uh podcast record recording podcast and then now here in what is the evening time in the uk so it is it's a 24-hour lifestyle thing isn't it you know it's commitment and yeah blood sweat and tears <laughs> <laughs> certainly is um now I, I this is a real cliche place to start and i'm sure that anybody who has listened to the classic lenses long enough may well know this already but i don't recall ever hearing this so we know you and listeners to the classic lenses will know you as somebody who you're living in hong kong you're out there shooting film taking pictures and shooting some digital as well but largely film it seems like um and spending an incredible amount of money on a ridiculous amount of lenses. You have a problem. Um, but I would, I, I said, I know it's a very trite question, but I would love to know actually, how did you get into all this in the first place? Because you're not from Hong Kong. Um, so, what's a bit of your background and your photographic background? Oh, okay. Big question. Uh, I am, yeah, I'm Canadian, uh, Chinese Canadian. So, I grew up in Edmonton and photographically, I think, you know, we all take pictures when we're young. When I was a kid, I always wanted to hold my dad's camera when we went to uh, trips around Alberta and stuff like that. But I think it was when I was in university that I started to take photography uh, a lot more seriously. And so I was shooting, you know, portraits, fashion, birds, landscapes and stuff like that uh, with Canon DSLRs and 
I think it was in my second year of university that I took a darkroom course and a studio lighting course. And that sort of sucked me back into the world of shooting film and primarily black and white film. And so I did that in Canada for the good part of a decade in Toronto. Uh, and then after in 2014, I moved back to Hong Kong uh, because I did go to high school here. And after I got back to Hong Kong, I was I was in a bit of a photographic rut because, you know, the stuff I was shooting before in Canada, I, I would say 99% of the time my goal was very simple. I wanted to make beautiful images that were well lit, sharp, and just pretty to look at. Uh, the kind of thing that would get you, you know, hundreds of likes on 500 pics and things like that. And Hong Kong was a very different environment. It's it's chaotic. Uh, it's dirty in a lot of places. Uh, it's crowded. And I found it really difficult to sort of see the beauty uh, from a purely aesthetic point of view. And, and then I think it was when I really discovered the work of Fan Ho, who was a photographer probably the most legendary street photographer to come out of Hong Kong. And he shot Hong Kong in the 1950s on a Roloflex. And his work is just a wonderful combination of composition, light, timing, and human moments and human emotions. And, you know, he was heavily influenced by, obviously, photographers like Henri Cartier-Bresson um, and different sort of aesthetic schools. And his work is really, I think, what made me start looking at Hong Kong differently and the way that you could approach street photography, which didn't hold a huge amount of sway for me before, certainly not living in Toronto. And uh, yeah, and then from that point onwards, I started uh, looking for things other than beauty in in the photography. And I think the... <laughs> sort of downhill spiral of lenses came when probably when I got my first Leica. Uh, but, but a little before that, cause even in Canada I had purchased, you know, a, a bunch of digital equipment, but also a few cheaper old lenses to play around with. Um, so that was always, you know, part of the, part of the appeal as, as I think Hamish likes to say, it's, it's almost two hobbies, right? The playing around with gear and then the actual photography, because even though I have just an absurd number of rangefinders and mostly rangefinder lenses, when I'm actually shooting, I would say I use the same stuff for the vast majority of the time when I'm doing proper, proper photography. Uh, and then the rest of the time when I'm bringing random lenses and cameras out, it's more because I want to mess around and uh, just yeah, play with the equipment and see what it can do for me. So so it's almost two different, um, yeah, two different mindsets. But yeah, that, that's pretty much how how we got here, the, the long and short of it. Uh, when I got to Hong Kong as well, I discovered that it was an incredibly rich place in terms of the film community, uh, the availability of film, of chemicals, um, of camera stores, vintage camera stores. And so it's one of the best places, I think, to do this hobby. There are, you know, Johnny Sisson, our, our co-host on Classic Lenses podcast, he, he likes to tell us that his shop, Central Camera, is pretty much the only 
uh, shop that sells used vintage equipment in downtown Chicago, which has a population of like something like nine million people. Um, Whereas Hong Kong, a population of seven and a half million, there's one neighborhood relatively close to where I live where there are at least 10 shops selling film cameras, lenses and, you know, darkroom chemicals and equipment. Um, So it's really, really good for that. It sounds like it's dangerous for the wallet, though. <laughs> that sounds like it could be a real problem in that sense. It's incredibly dangerous for the wallet. Uh, you know, I, I get I get a fair bit of stick from the podcasting community for my just extreme gas and uh, gas inducement of others. But by Hong Kong standards, I would say that my gas is well under control. <laughs> <laughs> So clearly things are different over there then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's a very different kind of society. I, I can't I can't afford to buy an apartment here, so I just buy rangefinders instead. Okay. Can, can you can you live inside a rangefinder or is it, or if you put can you use them as bricks perhaps? <laughs> uh eventually when when I <laughs> accumulate enough of them. Yeah. No, My I house have built of likers. Yes. It'll be it'll be nice and sturdy. <laughs> yeah, last forever. So it's the secret three little pig that you never hear about because you <laughs> <think> from- <laughs> <laughs> this little pig built his fortress out of yes, out of German cameras. But it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's uh, it, this is. Uh, uh, a really interesting conversation for me, a very timely conversation for me. Let me say, actually, maybe that's what better way of putting it, because uh, I um, I've set myself out not not in a New Year's resolution kind of a way, but in a just in a, a, a give myself a kick in the ass kind of a way um, to, to 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 learn more about different genres of photography uh, this year, and one of those is street photography, which you know I, I've often done what I might call urban landscapes but but uh not not really actual street photography which is all about people and culture on the street and uh you know i have that whole cliche thing of uh, i've got to get past the the fear of it and and i actually set myself the challenge of doing that this year regardless of what that ends up meaning um but but you of course you you are a you know just just flicking through your your instagram stream just for example you know there's a whole host uh, of you know of street photography here um and and in some what must have been some quite challenging situations with the you know with the unrest in hong kong at the moment so uh-huh. so so i'm hoping i can learn something from you in this conversation and you know how to, how to face my own fears and how to get past those and move on to other stuff so i hope you've come with some hints and tips and some tangible yeah, actions i can take <laughs> yeah sure yeah we, we can definitely have that conversation because cool. that was your thing wasn't it for you, you when we first started speaking of, of regarding this in particular it, it was about the fact that or your frustration that so many conversations uh, around street photography can start and finish around the, well you need to overcome your fears and so on and and the, the Actually, the the fears and the worries and the social niceties and and all of these things tend to dominate so much of the conversation. Um, and as somebody who, you know, it seems you have a a real love for both the art form and the experience of shooting. That you're like, yeah. I, I want to talk about my passion. So, I mean, yeah, tell us about your passion for the hobby. So, yeah, the the whole getting over fears of people. It seems like there's a, a 
trajectory that a lot of people who get interested in street photography um, sort of progress down, which starts with, you know, obsessing over that fear of of taking photos of people and strangers, uh, which often translates to things like learning tips on how to not get spotted or shooting from the hip and things like that, which I definitely went through myself uh, and I no longer do because I don't think it yields good photographs. Um, but the way that I like to think about it is, you know, the conversation, as you say, so often starts and ends there. And to me, it's almost like asking a landscape photographer, hey, how do I get over my reticence to wake up super early to catch the sunrise? And then they give you a bunch of tips on how to wake up early. And then you're like, oh, sweet, I can do landscape photography now. When, <laughs> when you know, there's so much more to the actual uh, genre. But but also, Abe, I, I like the fact that you're exploring it as a new genre because I think street photography for me is something that from a shooting experience point of view puts together a lot of the skills that accumulate from other forms of shooting. Um, because definitely when I'm out on the street, I can see the way that, for example, when I used to shoot landscapes in Canada, the, the compositional uh, techniques and the things you would look for composition-wise really, really help with street. Um, when I used to shoot bird photography, the, the element of timing uh, has bled into my street photography a lot. And then, of course, portraiture and capturing human emotion and expressions and things like that uh, also bleed in. So so in some ways, I almost feel like it's a a genre that takes advantage of every other photographic skill you've built up over the over time and you know you just have to implement it in a very quick way that's, i mean that's, that's really well, interesting actually because uh what well, i have um you know uh have, having done a lot of uh, urban photography o over the years is uh, often i've worked in london and I've, I've made sure that i'm taking photographs on my commute various different times and so, you know, quite happy to walk through London with a camera in my hand and take photographs, but less happy traditionally to, to point the camera straight in people's faces. Although, you know, not being in the invasive way, but you know, in, in a deliberate way. Um, yeah. And uh, and so uh, I think, though, one of the things that I've noticed in a couple of times I've been out recently to do this two, two or three times in, in, in uh, just in recent weeks uh, is actually... Some of the things I know from other types of photography really do fit in. So one of the things I've had to learn over the last you know, uh, five or six years or so is, is how to anticipate what my children are doing to take yeah. photographs of them. And that does mean that occasionally you will go from standing still to running 20 yards in, the, in a strange direction just because yeah. you've spotted a shot. There's a shot you want. You know, there's, there's a background to the shot you want. And that background is off to the right. So you, you run 20 yards to the left. <laughs> and try and make a capture of some sort and so and i noticed that that the that that was a feature of, of how uh you know to, to capture something that i could anticipate in in street photography you know it, it's very much a learned skill from trying to take photo family photos of children as as they run about the place so yeah it's, it's yes. interesting and i've i've also felt myself you know um deliberately started off with a very small you know point and shoot camera and uh you know not not um not being very deliberate more more sort of dancing and flowing through the crowds as it were rather than you know, you know lingering and lurching around and pointing it deliberately at people you know trying to be stealthy about it um 
that that's helped as well but i this is this is the the yeah this is the the for me it feels really new and exciting and a little bit scary but uh but not as scary as i thought i had be and nobody's beaten me up yet either <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the point you make about anticipation is a great one because you know street photography I, I don't think it's one thing i think depending on the kind of image that you're taking uh it it, it involves lots and lots of different scenarios but anticipation in a city is a very very interesting theme to me because cities are designed to designed as spaces uh for people to you know interact um and you know spend money but but essentially interact with the space and so when you're shooting street most of the time it's going to be in a city and when you if you see something happen then it's going to happen again so that feeling of missing the shot you can overcome by just figuring out where you want to stand and then waiting because if someone, for example, uh, walks past a sort of urban landscape in a position that you think is perfect for the shot, but you miss it, then just stay there and wait. And it, it, I guarantee you it will happen again, usually sooner rather than later. Uh, whereas, you know, that that those in those kinds of shots, the person is probably less important uh, as an individual and and they serve a role to complete the composition Whereas if you're taking a photo of someone who is, for example, at work or doing something interesting, then it's all about the individual and less so the space. And that's a somewhat different approach, right? That's it. That's really interesting to hear you say that because I, uh, I, I sense I sense that even though I'm I'm just starting out, I sense that that is absolutely correct, and I could probably think of a couple of times when that's come to to me naturally, you know, rather than chasing around you know, chasing my tail all the time trying to find a photograph actually sometimes if you can find a composition and, and, and maybe just wait until something pops in so if there's if there's a if there's a, a place that people can cross a road that happens to take them through a, a shaft of sunlight for example or something like that yeah. and i know that's that's very much a cliche and in fact actually in some ways that takes you right back to fan ho doesn't it um yeah or, although uh, and uh, and i'm not a great student of fan ho's but the work that i have seen uh, often there's a uh, often there is a quietness and stillness to it as well at least some of the stuff that i've seen um so uh i've probably got that horribly wrong now but there we go <laughs> no no i i think that's i think that's fairly accurate because um as i mentioned he often talks about cartier-bresson being his biggest photographic influence and that method of finding your composition first and then waiting for someone to fill it is a is a very you know classic method that he used but street photography is also one of those things where I mean, you've probably encountered this just shooting urban uh, urban landscapes or urban architecture where really, you know, the old adage of a good photograph is knowing where to stand comes to the fore quite a lot. Because if you're standing, for example, at the end of a column, uh, one of those classic, you know, columns you might see in a train station or some older architecture. Yeah. You know, taking taking two steps to the left is the difference between that column uh sort of pushing out through the center of the frame versus a more diagonal composition. And then when you have a person filling that frame, the the dynamic of the image and how it guides your eye is completely transformed by those two elements interacting with where you've chosen to stand. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To- totally. See. Yes. So you. You. I tell you what. You're also quite good at. You're also articulating all the things that I struggle to articulate. So. <laughs> so you're definitely helping me out with that as well. But yeah, it, 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 you, you've reminded me of a time not so long ago when I was at a very famous railway station in London and doing exactly that, trying to stand just to feature to feature the Gothic columns in the shop, but in a way that they were part of the landscape rather than the subject, mm-hmm. and, and then and then wait for people to come in and fill the fill the spot it's um yeah yeah it, it's yeah yeah it's uh, uh all, all all um all, all interesting stuff so let me let me test you out with another one if i may and then i'll then i'll let graham get a word in edgeways but <laughs> so so another thing that i've observed with, with is that um there are some some photographs uh that that where you can you can see and you can and compose and then there are uh, and things like that and there are other photographs where you just have to point and shoot regardless of mm-hmm. you know, what what what's going you know you, you, something just happens to you that you haven't anticipated and it might be very it might be very close up to you and and something something like that you know i i and i'm thinking of one the uh that i took the other night on on the the rainy photo walk in in soho that graham will moan about shortly and uh and uh, that was where I was. I just happened to be stood under an awning, and and uh, a couple of people with umbrellas came came and stood right up close to me, and they sort of shook their umbrellas off and stuff like that. And I quickly grabbed mm-hmm. a shot, even though I, they were like, you know, three feet away, if uh, at most. Uh, and uh, that that came out, and it was wonky because I did, you know, I didn't have time to compose, and I did, you know, and the camera I was using just had a screen. It, it was a digital point and shoot. It didn't have a, a, a viewfinder, so I wasn't lining it up. And to be honest, that would have been I- intrusive anyway. And I find mm-hmm. that some of those shots have a, a, a huge amount of energy to them. Yeah, and and so it, it's almost like. Uh, an inverse relationship you know the, the more you plan the less energy you capture and i love the idea that, that one of the things for me that's really exciting is is uh is coming from where i've done urban landscape type stuff in the past it's to capture energy of people interacting and stuff like that i find i find that fascinating and, a li- and again exciting and a little bit scary as well but if you is is there is there a do you find that in your own work? Do you find that the some is more deliberate and others uh, and has maybe less energy and others that then have more energy because they're so spontaneous? Yes, absolutely. So the you know the the energy that you describe, I think, is the ability that street photography has to kind of open you up to the the, the entire spectrum of human experiences. Um, from a from a purely shooting point of view, I think the more you shoot, the faster you get at making quick decisions about, uh, you know, c- can I quickly sprint into position? Um, or if you can't move, then at least you can make a quick decision about how high you want the camera to be. Uh, but in, in terms of that energy, I think you're bang on, right? That these these human moments are, you know, there's a book that I come back to a lot, which is uh, Exiles by Yosef Kodelka. And the every time I come back to that book, I, I look at his photographs a little bit differently. And most recently, because his images are kind of quirky, the aesthetic is very odd. Um, but most recently, I've started looking at them not only in terms of the content of the image and how it's composed and whatnot, but also from the perspective of the photographer. Because half of the time, you look at the picture and it's compelling. But then when you ask yourself that question of, wait, 
what is the photographer doing there in the first place? Where are they standing in in relation to these other people? Um, that that can make it even more interesting when, as a viewer, you can look at someone else's work or your own work and appreciate not only what's in the image, but also where the photographer is standing in order to get that image, right? Especially when you're you're super up close. And that way, it, it becomes a, a two-way dynamic of... Um, what that image, the story that image is telling. It's telling you a story about the photographer as much as it's telling you a story about uh, the content and the moment. Mm. Um, but but just to, to add to that as well, I think it it is it is the one genre that I've d- d- um, gone deep into where you don't look for, you don't have to look for uh, the kind of aesthetically pleasing as your you know, your first reference point. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that chaotic energy can be just as, uh, exciting to look at, um, or just as meaningful as, you know, a beautiful, perfectly lit portrait. I suppose even when, even when you're capturing chaotic energy though, uh, what it doesn't have to be beautiful for a photograph to work. It, the structure still has to be right. It kind of it doesn't matter oh, yeah. whether it, 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 um, because it, from what you guys are both saying, it, it, it feels like there's sort of two distinct dynamics that make up and, and kind of quite contradictory dynamics that make up good street photography. So on the one hand, there's the patient anticipatory finding a, a good stage and a spot and waiting and almost quite a meditative, meditative way of approaching it to get the, the one side of it. And the other aspect is capturing this energy, almost more of a hunting uh, approach to it. Um, and then it seems like to, you need to get good at both of those things mm-hmm. so, to, so that you can bring the energy that you're capturing when you're out on the hunting side of things, but have the foresight and the um, sort of awareness of where you are to put the shot together properly so that whether it's in a beautiful area or a hideous area, you've created a great scene because the kind of the one without the other, you can end up with, and I know you've spoken about this in the past, but you know, we see a lot of beautiful pictures of um, people playing with shadows and light coming through buildings and people's position with them and stuff like that. And they're lovely, but they're in much like a beautiful picture of some mountains and stuff like this. You go, Oh, that's, that's pretty. That's nice, but that's kind of it. And mm-hmm. then the flip side of that is you get these great street moments going on, but you know they can be caught. As, as Aid was saying, he you know, he captured the energy in his picture, but he didn't because it was a bit rushed. He wasn't quite where he was wanted to be. It wasn't quite framed up as well as he wanted. It seems like getting these two bits to come together is the real challenge, if yes. it matters at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, indeed, if it matters at all. Yeah, but I mean, you have to make so many decisions in a split second that, you know, uh, after I sh- after I shoot a roll of film, I definitely when I'm going through the images, I'll, I'll look for primarily three things, uh, human moments, composition and lighting. And there's always something you can improve, right? You look at a picture and you think, oh, man, if I had taken one step to the left, you know, this person's head would be better contrasted against that wall instead against a, of against like this darker part of the wall. Or you look at an image and think, oh, it's backlit. It would have been better if I sprinted around so that it wasn't backlit. Uh, but if, if enough of those sort of photographic boxes are ticked, um, then then the image often works. And it, it's really cool to look at images as in you know individual pieces of work uh, when you're assessing them. Because, you know, Graham, you, you talk about it as, as two different types of street photos. And I think there's a lot more than two. 
Um, because especially when it involves people, just going back to that question of, you know, overcoming your fears and whatnot, to, to me, that's almost like asking someone, oh, hey, can you give me some tips on how how to speak to, you know, this, this woman who I want to talk to, right? And, and it's like, you can't really give a checklist of tips because they're human beings. Yeah. And human beings will react differently. And it depends on whether or not, for example, you want them to notice you. Like if you're taking a close up of someone who's at work, for example, which is a kind of image that I really enjoy making, they're going to know that you're taking a photograph. Right. Um, so you have to interact with them in, in a way where you're not acting in a in a creepy um, or off-putting manner. Whereas if you're doing a kind of urban landscape with people walking through it, they, they don't have to know that you're there. Um, and it probably doesn't matter whether or not they do notice you. So because you're dealing with people, it's it's there's no single set of tips that you're like, if you shoot this way, then everyone's going to love you as you photograph them on the street. That's how much really of it comes nice, down yeah. to... Sorry, I mean, how much of it comes down to just self-confidence? Because, I mean, regardless of even taking people's pictures, I I feel very self-conscious just being in one place with a camera. I'm like, oh, people are going to be looking at me thinking, what is this weirdo doing? Anyway, I mean, regard, you know, as you're saying, everyone's different, but is it a lot of it just boils down to, if you're confident and you feel like you belong there, you're going to get along better? Uh, Well... I mean, I think I think there's an element of that. And a lot of people who do street photography will, will 100% agree with you. But my experience is a little bit different because shooting in Hong Kong, there's one extra factor that makes things particularly challenging for me, which is the language barrier. Uh, my Chinese is not great. And so I don't have that ability to strike up little conversations with people who I'm photographing. Um, or at least not in, in any meaningful kind of way. And it would be way easier if I could do that. So there are, you know, even when I'm out shooting, I, I frequently get that lack of confidence that you describe. And I, I just embrace it because street photography, uh, it, as I mentioned, it says as much of, about the photographer, their worldview and what appeals to you aesthetically, what kind of moments you think are worth capturing. And any anxieties that you have as a shooter will i think in some way inevitably translate themselves into the into your choice of images so i say just embrace it you know if you the, if you're more confident your images will will exude that confidence as well but if you're if you're less confident there are ways to shoot street that you know lean in and embrace that aspect of your personality Right. Because, I mean, a lot of people look at it as a sort of psychological exercise of overcoming your fears of people and your own self-consciousness and anxieties. But I don't think if you're anxious and unconfident, you can't be a good street photographer. Yeah, well, that's, that's good. Really, news. Yeah. <laughs> good news, everybody. <laughs> and I really like what you're saying as well, because I think, as you said, I mean, ultimately, our photographs should be an, an outward expression of who we are in some ways. And um, yeah, and I think if your outward expression is of somebody who isn't comfortable being around people and that comes through in the pictures, that's all that's all right. If there's good pictures, they're still good pictures. And if they actually show a bit of who you are, I think that, yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Um because I think there is this there's this feeling that especially I suppose if we you know we listen to people who are on YouTube or on podcasts or wherever it might be and watch videos going oh this is how we do it and we go out and you you kind of you do get yourself into a mindset of well 
this is the right way of doing things. This is this is the correct approach that I should be working towards, as opposed to, well, what's my approach going to be that does work for me to get the results that I work uh, that work for me? Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and in a city, I think, you know, more often than not, your fears are your own, and if you do just if you see an image you want to make, then you know, if you allow yourself to be overcome by the desire to make that image uh, over anything else, you'll find that I think most of the time people don't care. Um, and even if they do care, it, it can be unpleasant, but it's not that bad. Mm. Have you found, I mean, it sounds like the, the, clearly the answer to this is yes, but I mean, your journey through this um transition into hong kong and going from the way you felt when you started there not knowing what you wanted to do and then finding street photography and um the transition i, I was listening to you recently talking about the fact that um you went to take some pictures and you found that going back to some of the calmer street photography side of things as you, you know like said that finding a nice place with great lights and shadows and silhouettes yeah it it wasn't speaking to you anymore because over the last few months you've been doing a lot of shooting um, around the troubles and stuff that's going on and getting, getting in there and getting up close and personal and capturing a lot of that human emotion going on. Mm. Um, has it, has it forever changed the way you're going to do your street photography? Oh, I, I don't know about forever, but part of what appeals to me about shooting street is capturing the, the vibe of a place and the sort of underlying social and cultural tone of the people in a location. And with the unrest in Hong Kong, yeah, I have been shooting the protests a lot. Uh, and especially in November when there was a huge escalation of uh, violence between police and protesters, it, that that undertone has 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 remained and so when i'm out shooting if i try to shoot in the style that i was shooting maybe eight or nine months ago it doesn't feel genuine and i think that's as much a reflection of my take on things um as it is of hong kong itself you know because there are people going about their day walking through well-lit areas and things like that but it there's an element of it that feels dishonest at this moment. Now, again, the reason I say that's probably as much a reflection of Hong Kong as it is of me is there's obviously merit if you're if you're a certain kind of street photographer to, for example, want to capture tender moments of, of joy and happiness in a conflict zone. Right. We see a lot of images like that, and I think they're very, very powerful, uh, but it's not it's not the kind of image that is resonating with me at the moment. I don't think it's permanent. Um, I think a lot of that will depend on how permanent the situation in Hong Kong is. But yeah, it, it feels a little bit different because I think the transition that I had from what I was shooting in Canada to discovering street photography in Hong Kong was an evolution photographically. Whereas this thing I'm struggling through right now is probably more of a I see it more as a I don't know a, a preference for what's resonating with me at the moment because the vibe of Hong Kong everything you do uh, everything that happens has this undertone of unrest attached to it and there's a 
there's a degree to which if my photos don't have that these days, they just feel dishonest. And so I find them less compelling and interesting. I mean, that's the stuff I post on Instagram. I shoot, you know, I shoot plenty of photos of like family and portraits or friends and things like that um, and random shots here and there. But the stuff that I feel like sharing. Yeah, it, it, it's it's sort of dominated by that right now. It's, yeah. I think it's interesting that, it, that for you that that's linked to uh, conflict or yeah, uh, in a way, because I think I I I think I, I have a sense even if, uh, you know uh, of of what you mean uh, in, in a way that makes sense to me perhaps you know and and mm-hmm. and do correct me if I'm wrong but the 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 when I when I've started getting these higher energy photos now because they are more spontaneous they're they're much more about people they're not you know they're not about they're not about making uh, an aesthetically pleasing image they're about capturing a a a a, a thing that I've spotted a uh, um, uh, I try not to use the word moment and especially try not to say decisive moment because they're not about, they're not necessarily about (laughs) decisive moments. They're actually just about Mm -hmm. moments, right? So not all moments are decisive. In fact, many are not, many are quite indecisive, but the, so I don't, I definitely don't mean a decisive moments, but what I, yeah, but capturing something that is, is, it could be completely mundane, but it's got something about real people in it and it's got movement in it. And, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. what we went out shooting again. Yeah, this is with, with others, like Graham, Graham and I, and others. Uh, and it was night time, and I had a digital point of shoot, and I was shooting at twelve thousand ISO. Yeah, you know, and j- just to make sure that there was something coming out there. And so the photos are anything but technically good, right? Um, uh, but I still feel there's a whole bunch of energy in it, and and that yeah. I think that energy, I think I'm going to start to find that really addictive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I know what you mean. <laughs> the the technical perfection becomes secondary when you're shooting that quickly. Um, you know, one of one of the photos that I posted earlier this year, which got some of the most reaction from from people I know and and members of the sort of classic lenses podcast community, is this super blurry picture where you can barely tell what it is, but it's basically a riot police officer. Uh, tapping my camera with her baton because I got too close right. with a 28 millimeter lens. And so it, it's really just a blur, but you can kind of see the police helmet and the baton in it. And technically it's atrocious because obviously my camera is like flying, you know, uh, across the frame. But it has such an energy and resonance to it that it's actually one of my favorite. Favorite is a weird word to use. Uh, but it's one of my most memorable images from last year for precisely that reason. It's just the energy in it. Yeah, yeah, that's that. That it is interesting, isn't it? So, so well, let's talk about. So, yeah, you know, it's a good segue, perhaps, to talk about some of the the technical side. I mean, it's, you know, you clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, we've talked already about you having a, 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 a large number of lenses, but I think you also have a, a number of cameras to put them on. Because if I if I'm looking at your Instagram Instagram stream yeah. uh, carefully enough, which of course is is very well annotated. Um, <laughs> a lot of your images capture <laughs> the camera, the lens, the film. You know and all sorts so so there's quite a lot of metadata in your instagram feed and clearly you have more than the one camera <laughs> i'm intrigued uh-huh. as to how you managed to shoot stealthily with things like bronicas and an x-pan and stuff like that <laughs> well yeah yeah it, it i gotta keep up the classic lenses persona uh and that's why i annotate <laughs> everything with the well not not everything there's some images from november where the content was way more important and i i apart from a few hashtags didn't really care about the gear um 
Well, the the X-Pan is is really not that different from shooting with a Leica because it's just an oversized rangefinder. But there are... I have way too many cameras. And every now and then I do feel like just grabbing something random and going out and shooting because it, it can be a different experience. You know, there's there's a lot of joy in shooting street with a waist level finder. Um, so I do have quite a lot of medium format cameras like uh, a Rollercord, Pentax 67, Veronica S2, Mamiya 645, uh, and, th- and things like that where a waist level finder is disarming um, because you're not you're not looking at your subject as you're shooting them. And so I find a lot of the times you can get really close to people. And even if they know that you're taking their photograph, there's something about not being stared at or not having a big lens shoved at you that just disarms people. Yeah. Um, but, you know, 90% of the time I'm just shooting with a rangefinder. And as far as technique goes, you know, you mentioned earlier having to uh, shoot like a point and shoot. Yeah. And one of the things that, I find really, really helpful is I would say about 90% of the time I'm shooting with a 35 millimeter F2 lens uh, with a focus tab because on the street, most of the time I'm at around F8. And so if you know your lens well enough, then you pretty much know your three zone focus positions as well. Uh, And so depending on how far your subject is, you can just push the tab to the right position and you know that you're more or less in the right focus ballpark. Yeah, and you interesting. Let the depth of yes. do the work for you. I can right. see that. Do you know what? I can see de- definitely now you described that how a focus tab would be really, really, uh, really, really useful because you, you don't have to look at that point, do you? You, you know, you, you don't have, you've got nothing to read, nothing to slow you down. You don't have to try and de- you know, decipher, uh, with the, uh, the, the distance gauge on the lens if your lens even has one. You know, it's all, yeah. you, you can, uh, and, and I've done that with, um, with, with some of the the 35 millimeter nikon lenses yeah that that i yeah that i own um and you know get to a point where you're very comfortable with a particular lens and you can you can achieve your focus very very quickly indeed just because you you, you know you've got the muscle memory you know you know where it is you know yeah. roughly how far you know wandering around with it on a hard a hard stop on on infinity and you know exactly just which direction to turn it and by how much to get it into roughly the right place and, mm-hmm. and all of that sort of thing yeah interesting it's a focus tab that's quite uh, yes i don't think i don't have any lenses with a focus tab on it so maybe i should go out and buy a classic lens with a focus tab on it (laughs) (laughs) this is this is how i get accused of inducing gas in people um for good reason that's okay that sounds like it might be quite practical that's not that's not it's extremely it's extremely practical because you know my experience is that anything wider than 50 millimeters is easier much easier for me to focus on a rangefinder uh, and then anything longer than 50 millimeter uh, is going to be easier for me to focus on an SLR. Right. And since yeah. the vast majority of the time I'm using wide angles, the focus throw on a lot of rangefinder lenses is fairly consistent, where from infinity to about six o'clock, that is going to be most of your focus throw from infinity to around maybe two meters. Yeah. And then the rest, the rest of the throw is your close-up range. And so when you're shooting on, on the street, you very rarely go into ultra close-up range unless you're like bruce gilden or something and shoving your camera in people's (laughs) faces so you know the technique that i use is if i need to shoot quickly i always start on infinity and then only focus in one direction so that the moment the double image overlaps then you quickly compose and shoot and if you don't even have the time to focus with the rangefinder patch 
then you pretty much know you've got infinity. You've got six o'clock as a close-ish range. And then kind of 45 degrees or halfway through is your sort of middle distance, usually around five, four to five meters. Yes. And those three distances are pretty much all you need uh, if your depth of field is big enough. If you're at, at F8, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, on a wide-angle lens, you're good to go. So, so how do you shoot? Uh, how do you shoot at night then at, at f eight? Uh, what sort of film do you use for that kind of thing? What sort of shutter speed? Just yeah, you know, while we're on the, the technical side. Uh, well, I do not shoot at f eight at night. Okay, um, good point. Okay, good. Uh, lesson number one then. Excellent. <laughs> if, if I do, I'm, I'm. Those are probably the times I'll grab my my digital cameras. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think at night, most of the time, if I'm shooting film, uh, I shoot Cinestill eight hundred T because the lights in Hong Kong, the artificial lights, they are beautiful on that film. It, it, depending on where you are in town, it can have either a sort of Blade Runner-y vibe or a kind of vintage Wong Kar Wai vibe. And so I'll just grab a lens and stick it at F2 and 1 over 60. And that's usually a good starting point for uh, the level of artificial light in Hong Kong. Um and, you know, occasionally I will shoot other films. Uh, I've pushed Portra and Ultramax 400 to 800, and I think they look pretty good. Uh, black and white obviously works as well. But Cinestill, not only at night, but that that twilight hour where you still have a little bit of daylight, which is blue in its tone. Yeah. But the artificial lights are on. So around f- between, depending on the time of year, between, say, 4.30 and 6.30 p.m. Uh, here in Hong Kong. So... Where I think that film really shines is when you have a mixture of warm and cool light and artificial light, then it it just it looks beautiful. So that's my go to uh, setup at night. And then with a rangefinder, uh, usually you can get away with slightly lower shutter speeds if necessary. But most of the time, I find f two one over sixty is a good starting point. Good, good techniques. Good techniques. Thank you. It's because uh, I, I one of the things I have been thinking is, uh, and as as regular listeners will know, I, I I've had my struggles with film photography over the last eighteen months or so, um, and and I, I I dragged myself back into it, kicking and screaming last year by focusing on instant film, and I'm wondering, mm. you know, how I take it the the how I blend film photography into this new th- these. Two, two new types of photography I'd like to spend more time on this year and teach and learn more and experiment more, one being street and the other being landscape. And I think, I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I do love that. Uh, I do love the cities at night. You know, there's the, mm-hmm. something about the lights and, and, and the, the, the way people are, you know, uh, and, and what have you, especially in London where during the day what you get mostly in the streets is grumpy commuters uh, or, mm-hmm. or, or tourists. <laughs> um, and uh, the, you know, I try to think, well, how, how is it that I can, you know, uh, you, use film as, as an element of my photography in um in in that set, in that setting, in a, you know, in a city at night or at dusk or, or whatever it might be? Um, so yeah, the city still sounds like a good idea because otherwise Graham is just going to say to me, well, you only ever shoot digital Adrian and he would be right. It, you know, and I don't, <laughs> and I don't want to get to that point. You know, um, I, I don't, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to, you know, uh, I, I, I like that. I do want to get back into shooting film better or but not better. Well, yes, better, obviously better. We all want to be better, don't we? <laughs> but, 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 uh, more, let's say. 
let's just make it yeah mind i mean the thing is there is there is an argument especially i think when you're coming to aid whereas you know you're coming to this discipline and you're wanting to get into it and spend more time and explore and get more comfortable with it i think there's actually quite a good argument for saying well actually if that's the stage that you're at with this um using digital is is a good idea because it removes one of the barriers um, of difficulty and allows you to focus on the content and the interactions and that side of thing and not have to be thinking about, okay, <laughs> what what's going on with this? Um, and then once you get to a point of comfort with those things, then you can go, okay, uh, now what tools do I want to use? But mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's kind of no getting, I mean, you went through this when you were doing stuff um, before Christmas, weren't you, Perry, where uh, you, know, you had conversations, I know, about, about actually should I be shooting digital when I'm out at night because I don't want to miss pictures and sometimes there is a risk that I might if I'm shooting film because of the limitations. Um, and, you, and so you did do some more digital shooting um, at night to make sure that you, you know, with these important events that you weren't going to miss stuff. Is that right? Yeah. It, actually, it was, it was Johnny, Johnny Sisson who talked me into that, uh, oddly enough. But I think you do make a good point. You know, shooting street with uh, a fuji x100 series camera for example is a wonderful wonderful experience um but for I, I personally prefer to shoot film as much as possible um and the only reason i shot digital a little bit was there were these big protests and, and conflicts that were occurring and sometimes they were occurring in my neighborhood and there was one night where uh the, the neighborhood Neighborhoods all around Hong Kong were holding a memorial to a student who had died in a conflict with the police. And the about 300 riot cops showed up in my neighborhood to shut down this memorial. And my neighborhood, just for context, is not in a, a sort of busy part of Hong Kong. It's really well out of the way. It's not a big uh, commercial or protest or urban center. It's just a quiet residential area. So to have all these riot police show up and then all the residents come downstairs to heckle them was a, a fairly intense experience. And I I shot a roll on my M4 uh, of the riot police kind of standing off against my neighbors. And I realized when I looked at my camera that I was on frame 40 and that the, the film didn't catch properly when I no, loaded no. it. Because, yeah, because basically I was on the second roll of the night and like, it was dark and it was chaotic and I was trying to load the film very, very quickly. And so I lost that role and had to kind of reload it. It, it ended up working out well because, well, again, well is not necessarily the best term here. But after I properly ro- loaded the film, the cops started tear gassing uh, all of the neighbors. Oh, and that so, was lucky then. <laughs> well, I got I got I got that. Uh, I got to photograph <laughs> that because the film was loaded properly. But the yeah, the, the, the experience of that when I got home was mm, I would have had an entire roll's worth of at least uh, worth of photographs if I were just shooting digital and didn't have this sort of film obsession. Uh, so at night, for a while, I started carrying my digital cameras around. I've stopped doing that again. Um, but I think if there's a big, if there's something big going on and I really don't want to miss the shot because it's not going to happen again, uh, then I'll go to digital. Right. It, it, it is interesting. You, so, so I suppose you know some of these things. They are so spontaneous. You have to you have to be ready, don't you? Um, yeah. You know, there's uh, and uh, there's 
uh, I, I don't know that you know, there's there's a whole whole range of emotions that you know in in your recent work around Hong Kong um you know some of it some of it quite scary some of it uh-huh. you know it, you know fit some of it where crowds are, are showing a, a lot of solidarity and you think well everybody's pulling together but then you think about the reason they're needing to pull together and and mm-hmm. then there's one there's one that caught my eye, which I don't know whether it's just a smoke bomb or whether it's tear gas or what, but it's right outside Marks and Spencers. Yeah. Oh yeah. And 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 that's a hell of an image for anybody that knows the the brand Marks and Spencer, which is a a, a brand um, of I guess not quite department stores, but um, in the UK certainly, yeah, most mostly clothing, some food as well these days, but mo- mm-hmm. historically a clothing store for people who are not particularly fashion conscious. <laughs> um, so very middle of the road kind of place. Hey, to see hey, something. Hey, I get I get most of my clothes from Marks and Spencer. <laughs> I'm what sure it's different. About? I'm sure it's different. In Hong Kong. I'm sure it's different in Hong Kong. Sensible underwear. That's where Perry goes for yeah, his stuff. Absolutely. You can't. You, if you want socks, you can't get better than Marks and Spencer. But <laughs> but you know, just uh, and that brand, of course, won't mean to everybody that sees that image what it means to somebody who's British or, or clearly yeah, yourself, Perry. You know, um, you know, but it's uh, it, it's quite an astonishing. Um, oh dear, the only word in my brain is juxtaposition. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's cool. That's a good word. It's yeah, it's actually it's actually appropriate for this image, um, of, of the two such very different things. You know, one being the middle of the, the the middle of the road clothes shop, and the other being you know um, uh, civil unrest and 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 potentially riots and violence as well. Um, it's quite it's quite astonishing. Yeah, you, know, you wouldn't want to miss that shot. Yeah. So so I have a story about that shot. Um, if, if you, if you go on my Instagram, that photo and the photo that comes right after it, uh, those are sequential. They happen kind of one after the other. So the second image is a bunch of people running away from the tear gas. I did wonder if that was the case. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's, that Marks and Spencer is just in my neighborhood. And what happened that night was a, a bunch of riot police showed up because some kids had put a few bins on the middle of the road. Uh, and there was a big standoff between the police, uh, the residents and the, the newly elected district counselor. And I was sort of upstairs waiting for all of this to blow over so I could go get food. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I, it was around 7.30 p.m. and the cops were finally starting to leave. So I went downstairs to go get food. And as the police were leaving, the residents were sort of heckling and, and pushing them out. And as they got into their vans and started driving away, they shot five rounds of tear gas out of the van towards the crowd. Oh, right. And I was standing, you know, in front of that Marks and Spencer on the edge of the crowd. And I started looking around because all I saw was the trails of sparks through the air. Uh, Marks and Sparks, tear gas sparks. (laughs) Oh, no. Very good. so, So I'm turning around and the tear gas canister had landed about two meters to my left. Uh, in the last place I looked, and I was like, "Oh, that's not that's not good." So I turned around and I started to run, and then after about two steps, I stopped and I thought, "Wait, this is a really really important photo opportunity." So I turn I, <laughs> I turn around. Um, you have yeah. poor survival instincts, Perry. Yeah. Um, well, so so I, I turn around. I pull out my my camera, which is in my bag, and I took a photo. Uh, and then immediately my face got hit by, you know, a giant cloud of tear gas. Um, and, you know, the, the 
the local residents were really nice about it. They helped me kind of wash my face out with saline water and things like that. Um, but those two shots were basically one after another after I decided very quickly that the, getting the photo was was worth getting tear gassed for. Uh, yeah, maybe not the best choice, but that, <laughs> there's definitely a story behind that. But the, these, the, the, these are the things that make a difference sometimes, aren't they? You know, uh, it makes it certainly makes a difference to 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 you clearly. Yeah, it makes a difference to me. I mean, I, I look at that shot and you know that 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 shot. I mean, I I I've never been to Hong Kong. Um, I I I wouldn't claim to be well educated on all the challenges that uh, that are there at the moment. Um, I know a little bit about it, obviously, but probably filtered through Western news services at the very best. Mm-hmm. I know the BBC view of the world. Um, yeah, and I'm sure there's far more to it than that. And yet yeah, that image really hit me. Yeah, really was like, okay, wow, that that because because Marks and Spencer in my world has so many connotations with homeliness and mm-hmm. uh, mildness uh, and you know inoffensiveness and uh, you know and. Uh, and yet all of these societal things are going on just right outside the front door. So, I mean, you know, that, that, that is a picture that tells a story and it sent me a very strong message. So, you know, these things can make a difference, can't they? So when you say maybe not the best decision, well, I mean, only you can be the judge of that, of course, but, (laughs) but, but, you know, for me, wow. Yeah. What a photo. Ah, thank you. Yeah. it, it, It was definitely worth it. I mean, it was I think that was the fourth time I've gotten tear gassed uh, while okay. <laughs> okay. while shooting. So oh. it was. Uh, and what, and what was, have you learned? <laughs> I have. It, it's funny because I spent from maybe July through to November. I spent all of those months trying to photograph uh, from as sensible a distance and time as possible. So I was really good at avoiding tear gas. Uh, and then after I got tear gas the first time. It just it seemed to happen again and again and again and again to the point where I was like, well, I know what it feels like now and I know I'm going to feel like crap for a good week afterwards. But if the shot is here, you know, there's less surprise about it. It's not pleasant. Don't don't get tear gassed. It sucks. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. To be honest, I I think I pretty much knew that already. I don't think I needed to find out first. Uh, it's like that. I'm not going to stick my hand in the fire either just to see if it's hot. I'm prepared to take it on an advisory. <laughs> okay. Wow. Well, uh, I I see. Do you know, I I I don't think that I, I've got anything to follow this part of the conversation. I'm wondering if we should maybe start to wind it up here a bit. But of course, I don't want to let you know to to stop the conversation, Graham. If you've got anything, or Perry, you've got anything you want you want to keep keep going. Regrettably, uh, and I and I say this regrettably for Perry. Um, I, I'm not going to do this because you know it's his co-hosts who are responsible. But as has happened in the past, um, Perry's good friends, um, Simon and Johnny, did send in an email with some questions that they would like us to ask Perry. So oh this my is God! Maybe, uh, <laughs> some of the, some of these Perry, you're going to have to explain what <laughs> why they're not all of them, but okay. Um, so. Um, the first question that uh, your friends ask is, how many 35mm lenses does a committed photographer need? Um, maybe you could answer, how many 35mm lenses do you own, Perry? Uh, I don't know. Ballpark it for <laughs> us. Uh, oh, 
Wow. I I really don't know. Um, two two figures or three figures? <laughs> oh, uh, definitely two figures. Okay. Well, yeah. Right. Just for thirty-five millimeter lenses. Yeah. yeah. I, I I have quite a few. I mean, you know, the funny thing is, I I don't own. I don't think I have any thirty-five millimeter lenses that are SLR lenses. Is that true? That can't be true. Uh but but I I have a lot of rangefinder 35 millimeter lenses. There's like the Canon. I have all of the Canon LTM ones. Um, so that's 1.5, 1.8, f2, and 2.8. There's the Zeiss ones. I've got two. Leica. Yeah, I've got a lot. I've got a lot of them. How many do you need? Uh, you probably only need one. Um, one. Good. Yeah, a 35 millimeter f2 uh, with a focus tab, and then you're good. Okay. And do you, do you? I know you say you you like to shoot quite wide, Jeremy. Is, do you find thirty five a good length for your shooting, or do you tend to go a bit wider these days? Oh, I shoot thirty five millimeter ninety percent of the time when I'm shooting thirty five millimeter film. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my go to lens is the Leica thirty five Summicron uh, version four. Um, That's my favorite version. What about you, Aid? Is that your favorite version? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so many lenses. Uh, well, when we were talking to Ethan Moses earlier today on, on our show, he has uh, the exact same setup, which is his favorite go-to setup, the M4 and 35 Summicron. Um, but, you know, you don't have to spend that much to get a good 35. I think the, the Canon 35 F2 is nice, but doesn't have a focus tab. Uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of 35. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, 35 millimeter lenses, there's no single perfect one. And so... I, I, I've oh, been. <laughs> you know that perfection is the enemy of good, right, Perry? You've heard that. Uh, well, let's move on from this insanity. Pro- pro- probably, otherwise, we're going to be releasing a, an episode of the Classic Lenses podcast if we're not <laughs> <Yeah>. careful. <laughs> well, I have another question, lens related. This is the one I don't know what they're actually asking. It says, News just in. Perry, you've won a Leica Thambar, Tambar lens. Oh. How do you feel about that? Is, I've never heard of Tambar. I thought that was some one of the elephants in Lion King. <laughs> this thing is an affront to humanity. Um, <laughs> oh, it, in the in the early 20th century, before Leica knew how to make good lenses, um, they released a soft focus uh, portrait lens called the Leica Thambar, which is a 90 millimeter f 2.2 lens uh, with that soft focus effect, which is exactly the same effect as you'll get if you rub Vaseline. Uh, all over a filter on in the, on the front of your lens, um, and they decided to re-release this lens a couple of years ago as a special edition, which you know, Leica these days just does that kind of thing because uh, they've lost their soul, and it, it, it's like it costs like thirty five hundred uh, thirty five hundred to maybe four thousand pounds to buy this piece of crap, um, and to me, it's everything. It embodies everything that's wrong with Leica these days yeah if you if you just if you literally go onto their own website uh their own web page for the thambar and the modern re-release at least the, the sample images on it are atrocious they're terrible um, so you wouldn't feel great about getting one is what you were saying if you were i'm picking up that vibe yeah um, yeah definitely def- definitely oh, that I, was a wind-up question that one wasn't yeah it? Okay, yeah. I've got I mean, one if you last... gave me one, I, I would sell it and buy an MP, but yeah. 
No, I'll have one last question here, um, which is relevant thing we were just talking about. Uh, and it seems a little bit of an unfair question because you don't have experience of one of these terrible things, I don't think, yet. It says, which is more preferable to you, uh, uh, tear gas or malort? <laughs> now, you've experienced tear gas, but you haven't I yet have. experienced Jepson's malort, which is, a, I understand, an unpleasant liqueur drink. <laughs> Yeah, it's the uh, official slash unofficial sponsor of the Classic Lenses podcast, <laughs> uh, a Swedish liqueur that apparently is disgusting. Um, having said that, you know, another disgusting Swedish thing is surströming, which I have tried because my Swedish friend here thought it would be funny. And that stuff, I, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's essentially a rotten fish in a can that's been is fermented. That stuff you can't. You can't open in a room because it will yes. just ruin it. I, I have heard that. So, okay, then that, well, let's take that question out. Which would you, given the choice out for experiencing one of those things again, which would it be, tear gas or surf streaming? Oh, tear gas. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go, Sweden. <laughs> Keep your food to yourself. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Okay. Oh well, is that is is that is that all the get is that all the get to know Perry quiz questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one here about pixel peeping, but I don't think Perry spends a lot of time pixel peeping. Really, I think he's out there shooting on the streets more time. So yeah, I won't I won't bring you low with that question, Perry. The reason the reason they sent that was because at the I think at the end of last week's episode, I went on a good two three minute rant about sharpness and how it's spectacularly overrated. Uh, because of the digital era i agree i wholeheartedly agree and also because i can't shoot anything sharp to save my no, life but, but it's, it's just it you know we're we're lens nerds on our podcast right and it's just the the fact that it's the most quantifiable metric um has made everyone gravitate towards it when too much is too much sharpness is bad and good and enough sharpness is is good enough and i just think that it's annoying how many of the other qualities of lenses other than maybe bokeh uh, and and contrast have been forgotten um and no one talks about them anymore because every time a lens comes out it's just how sharp is it how smooth is the bokeh and as as if that's the end of the conversation but that's what we exist for there you go <laughs> okay i got a feeling we yeah we we, we should we, we should probably start to wind out this conversation now before we wind up our guests too much so <laughs> so oh dear i did well graham um uh let, let's let's take this in a different direction um how's the oxford photo walk sign up looking oh it's looking very healthy thank you Ed. yeah it's looking very good i've got hang on a second now you said that i wasn't going to check because that just seemed rude but let's have a quick look now and see uh oh okay how's yours looking you probably more than me uh, I, no, actually, I don't think I've got anybody signed up for my photo walk yet. So it's just me and Anna at the moment, but that's probably because it's seven o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, and and uh, so uh, that's okay. Uh, I, I'm good with that. Um, but uh, it's uh, uh, th th I don't think there'll be any tear gas on my photo walk. But I, I don't know about Oxford. Oxford is a place. It's a weird city, isn't it? <laughs> It, I mean, maybe it's a weird city. It's an incredibly cultured city um, full of beautiful buildings. So it, it's really cool, actually. I spoke to Nasser Hamid um, earlier in the week. And so we kind of we we have a plan, which is quite amazing, <laughs> given that I'm involved. Um, so we're going to meet up and we're going to go for a walk around the beautiful Oxfordy culturey bits of Oxford. You know, the shell, the bits we went to when we went for a walk before Christmas Aid. So the Radcliffe camera and the Sheldonian theatre and the Bridge of Sighs and all that good stuff. Um, then have some lunch because that's all I ever really think about when I'm planning anything. And then after that, we'll hit the sort of 
the less well-traveled parts of Oxford that NASA knows best. We might go down by the canal or go into Jericho or something like that. The bits that don't get so much seen by tourists. So it should be a really fun day. I'm really looking forward to it. And yeah, there's, uh, there's, it's starting to grow into an alarming number of people apparently coming. That, um, yeah. Oh. Uh, I think Simon, Simon is going to your photo walk. Yeah, well, you can't have everything. Um, I did <laughs> making some entry requirements, but Simon snuck his name down first. So no, yes, very much looking forward to seeing Simon. And as I keep, I think I said on the backing paper, I'll bring stickers. Assuming I remember, I'll bring stickers. Also, very pleased that Paul Bullock um, is coming. Paul Bullock was one of our runner-up winners um, at the print competition, <laughs> and I haven't sent out the um, film to Paul and to Jonathan yet, so I can just give Paul his film. So you got that to look forward to, Paul. I've actually bought the film. Is <laughs> that something? I just haven't posted it yet, so Paul can get his given to him in person. It's all very exciting. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, I, I would have thought that Oxford and London are wonderful places to practice and do street photography, right? Because Oxford, you've got all that. Uh, sweet architecture and then London you've got so many different boroughs and neighborhoods each with its own unique kind of vibe yeah you know the thing the thing that you said Perry which I think is the like the paramount thing for me and and it kind of really relates to what Aid was saying earlier as well is the idea of practicing street photography and that is the biggest problem I think like anything you need to be able to practice it and that takes time and um and that's why I wonder whether um especially if you don't have a lot of time using digital to practice might be more practical because um, I, I struggle to get through a roll of film, uh, which means that I might not see the pictures I've taken for months. And and that's no good if you're practicing, you kind of want to see what you're doing, see what, what worked, what didn't work, what can I improve on? And, um, and, I've been thinking about this lately and the problem is I always think, well, I'm not going to take my digital camera out because I will never care about anything that I shoot with it. But maybe uh-huh. if I'm just practicing, that doesn't matter. Maybe if it's Wait. not about the quality of the output, maybe if it's just about like, the practice, maybe that would be, I don't know. Wait, hold on a second. So, so the, how long does it take you to get through a roll of film? <laughs> well, let's say between on a good day, <laughs> on a I might get through a roll of film <laughs> on a day. Yeah. Somewhere between a day to a year and a half. Okay, but so two things on that, right? I think number one, it doesn't matter if there's a delay because it can be a lot better if you look at your images uh, a little bit afterwards because that way you're you're kind of out of the emotion of the day that you shot them and you can look at them with a more kind of objective or measured eye. Um, And I don't know, as as you mentioned, it's, it's a little bit more meaningful if you're shooting film and it stops you from chimping. And that's that's really one of the big things for me because I chimp so much when I'm shooting digital, and the number of shots I've missed because I'm busy chimping is absurd. So, yeah, but but like for example, so when I was out with Aid on his incredibly soggy photo walk, he didn't even organise good weather for us. I don't know what was going on, um, but because it was just so biblically torrential, I was having to use an underwater camera to shoot. It was the only thing <laughs> that and a wetsuit. Um, so I was good. Uh, and it, it was good. I had a lovely evening. Um, but I shot 24 pictures on that roll of film, which is great. That's a lot for me. But that still leaves 12 pictures. And so, on a camera yeah. that I'm not likely to pick up again anytime soon because it's got 1600 color film in it. And it's just a little point and shoot underwater camera. So when am I going to use that again? <laughs> a year's time, probably. So, Graham, do you have do you have any rangefinders? I do. Yeah, I do. Because I think um, the one of the things about shooting rangefinders on the street is because you're not looking through the lens, you don't get a blackout at the moment the mirror flips up. 
Um, and so that yeah. whole waiting to see the image after you've developed it, I, I don't really get that sense as much because the, when you hear the shutter go off, you also see in the finder the very moment that you've pressed the button. Okay, yeah, yeah. And then it just kind of burns into your memory. Um, and you, you kind of know roughly what it's going to look like. Um, or at least what the moment's going to be like. So it's... Okay, that that's important. a good tip. All right, maybe I'll maybe I'll get out with my own range. I don't have any fancy Leicas. I, I picked up a Voigtlander Besser something Corolla today when I was in the shop. I was like, mm, that's really small and cute. And, and it had a, like a little pancake. Um, I think it was a 35 mil lens. And it I mean, the whole thing was just tiny little uh-huh. camera and this pancake with, with the lens tab on. I thought, oh, yeah, I could absolutely see this being lovely for getting out and shooting on the street because it would just disappear into your hands. It was mm-hmm. black and sexy and tiny, um, like me, in all those ways. Well, <laughs> None of those ways, actually. I'm none of those things, am I? Okay. Oh, well. Okay. Really, now is time to end the end this week's show. Perry, it's been great talking to you. Um, have you enjoyed yourself being on Sunny Sixteen? Yeah, it's been a been a pleasure talking to you guys. Excellent, excellent. Thank you ever so much for getting up so early in the morning. Are you going to have some breakfast now, or are you going to go back to bed? Oh, I haven't decided yet, but. But before we wrap things up, I have written uh, in the spirit of your sonnet 16, I've written the first four <laughs> lines of a sonnet. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Yes, this is great. You awesome. I mentioned it. We had a poem sent in to backing paper. Uh, I think sonnet 16 has got to happen. Excellent. No, oh, no, no. Yeah. Go, go for it, Perry. The stage is yours. Okay. It's, it's only the first four lines because I got lazy and didn't finish it. <laughs> uh, but the Classic Lenses podcast gents are here. To occupy the podcast you hold dear. While Sunny 16 is a useful rule, the lenses are your gas-inducing tool. (laughs) (laughs) To which I think the only reply is, you're a gas-inducing tool. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty, guilty. (laughs) Okay, that's that's awesome. Uh, What what a world we live in where you can shout at the internet for years and people repay you with poetry. What a splendid (laughs) world we live in. It's, it's It's not all dead yet. Okay, well, I tell you what then. Uh, So we've done some notice. We've had some poetry. We've done some notices about upcoming photo walks. Uh, I think we're probably done then, are we, Graham? I think, oh, the only other thing I'm just going to very quickly mention, because I got it today, uh, you have to bear me one second day, sorry, is I know we've been talking a lot about the photography show, um, and I'm suspecting that um, most people, well, maybe people have got their tickets already, but if you haven't already got your tickets, we do have um, a code to use, uh, which will get 20% off advanced tickets. So if you still need to get your ticket for the photography show, if you're coming, and we hope you are, because it's going to be a lot of fun. Aidan and I were discussing um, before Perry got on uh, our plans for the live podcast, it's the thing we have a stage the seats there's like nearly a hundred seats so you lot better turn up and be enthralled <laughs> um i want you all to be bringing those big foam fingers as well i'll be <laughs> that'd be awesome actually do that anyway the code if you want to get a 20 percent discount on a ticket on an advanced standard single day ticket it is sunny tps 20 um you can use it on the website so um yeah if you haven't got a ticket yet please feel free to use that it says codes expire at midnight on wednesday the 11th if you haven't got your tickets by wednesday the 11th you're possibly leaving things to uh, to like graham level lateness <laughs> yeah absolutely yes all right brilliant well there we go um uh, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes of course um show notes you can find anywhere you get this podcast uh, you can also find them on our website sunny16podcast.com uh or if all else fails uh hit us up on uh, twitter perhaps uh or 
Instagram where we are Sunny16 uh, podcast on each of those or send us an email sunny16podcast at gmail.com. All of those are good ways to get in touch and uh, we always like it when people get in touch. Uh, we will play you out now, I think, uh, with Rachel's band Rocker. You can get their album, Promises I Should Have Kept. Uh, you can get that on Spotify, uh, Bandcamp, iTunes. Uh, is iTunes called Apple Music now? I think it possibly is. But yeah, search for it and you'll find it. Um, and as always, it's been an honour and a privilege to talk to you all. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Perry, say goodbye. Oh. <laughs> <Damn it>. Bye-bye. <laughs> Hopeless. <laughs>